0: Welcome to Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. Throughout his career, Jim Lang has made it a priority to provide his clients, readers, and friends with useful cutting-edge information, as well as peer-reviewed financial and tax planning strategies so that they can make the most educated decisions and really get the most out of what they've got. We hope you enjoy the following special read broadcast from the Lang Vault. And Please stay with us until the end so you don't miss more information on how we can help you protect your wealth and ensure your family's financial security for the next generation. And now Jim Lang. Um, there's also a
1: new account. This is back in the accumulation stage. And this again, isn't law. This is just proposed law. Um, and it's called an ABLE account. And the closest thing to it is probably, um, Actually, I take it back. This is part of the law. This is a different law. <laughs> it is confusing. Um, where you can put $16,000 a year into this account. It's kind of like a 529 plan, where you put money into an account for somebody else, um, and that money, assuming it is eventually withdrawn for the needs of the disabled child, um, will be the withdrawals will be income tax free. Uh, This is a tremendous benefit for those of us, including me, who have a child with a disability because it it allows us to um, put money into an account that will grow tax-free for the benefit of our um, child with a disability. Now, the other thing that is really interesting, just on the subject of um, those of you who have children with disabilities is, now Now we're going back to the proposed law, is that there is a new um, definition of what a child with a disability is, and the reason that is important is because um, those who qualify, the beneficiary will be subject to the old rules for the stretch IRA, um, where you could stretch your distributions of the inherited IRA over your lifetime, which was the pre-2020 rules, uh, and that makes a, an enormous difference. And the change, partly they changed the definition, but here was the big thing. If your child or the or the beneficiary that has a disability has qualified for social security, they will consider that sufficient to qualify And I don't mean because they're, you know, regular Social Security. I'm talking about um, SSI or SSDI. Um, They will qualify to get the stretch IRA. And that was a huge worry for many of us who have children or a child with a disability, because we literally didn't know if our child would be able to stretch the inherited IRA or stretch the inherited Roth IRA so this is, again, it's not going to affect that many people on this webinar, but for those of us who do have a child with a disability, uh, it is enormous. I mean, my wife and I were just, we were, I wouldn't say jumping up and down and, um, you know, going out and getting, well, I do not go out and get drunk anyway. I'm a teetotor. But anyway, um, it's it, it's big news and it's really helpful, but that means that it's that much more critical that we do the work to make sure that the person that we want to take care of does qualify for social security benefits and that is no easy feat uh we've gone through it my wife literally put together i think i said a 500 page binder and she corrected me and said well if you include all the backup it's like a 1500 page binder Um, because often the child with a disability, even if child is very smart and and very articulate and in many ways would seem perfectly fine and would have a very intelligent conversation with you, like our daughter, sometimes the executive function isn't quite there that they might not be organized enough, I'm not sure I'm organized enough to put together all that uh, information. So anyway, some real opportunities for children with disabilities, one of these days I'm going to do a webinar just for IRA and retirement plan owners that have a beneficiary, most likely a child or a grandchild, uh, with some type of disability. And one of the reasons why this is so important, of course, we all want to get our tax planning right. We want to get our uh, we want to spend the right money first, and so we want to be very smart about our estate plan. But let's just say that we screw up and we don't leave as much money to our kids as we were hoping to or we could have if we had got everything right. Well, hopefully, if your child is able, while they might not have anywhere near as much money, at least that they can work and they can um, make a living and have some type of support, that might not be true if your child is disabled. So, again, critical issue. That doesn't apply to that many people, but for those of you who it does, uh, it is critical. And by the way, you have to get your trust right, your planning right. Uh, It's a whole different specialty, if you will. Again, one of these days, I want to write a book on it, (laughs) which that that book has to get in line with another of other books I want to write. And I do want to do a webinar for it. Okay, so actually, before we go on, I am about to switch from the accumulation side to the distribution side, Uh, do we have any questions on the accumulation side? So Erica, I will ask you, uh, do we have any questions in the chat or anything that has uh, taken place so far?
2: Yes there are two questions i see that deal with the accumulation side so the first one is from ching and he says hi jim did you say that for people who are still working who are over 60 and in the top tax bracket that it's better to put money into a 401k or ira instead of a roth 401k or ira
1: well i'm going to now i'm going to take put my lawyer hat on and i'm going to answer The question, like every lawyer will ask every question, which is, it depends. Uh, And it is, by the way, in my opinion, not in a matter of opinion, it's it's a matter of math. So let me give you two, two potential situations, Chen, and you might be qualifying one of these or more likely you'll be right in the middle, in which case it won't help you. Let's say that you are in your early 60s and and you're going to be working for a while. And then let's say that you have some outside investments, et cetera, et cetera. cetera, And you're never and and maybe you're even going to be working until you're 72. Um, Well, in that case, if you're always going to be in a where you are or a higher tax bracket down the road, then the Roths are going to make more sense. The example I said was, well, you're in a high bracket this year, you're going to be in a low bracket next year, then it's going to make more sense to put money in a traditional IRA and then do a a Roth IRA conversion after you retire. So I'll answer that one like a lawyer, and I'll say it depends. Um, And even if you were to give me all the specifics, there's a good chance that I wouldn't know off the top of my head. And again, I'm going to say that, many of these issues are a matter of math they aren't a matter of opinion they aren't well you should have some of each they aren't a lot of it is just math and a lot of people don't do the math including financial advisors and attorneys are probably the worst at it but our firm does the math and we say okay here's the mathematically best answer. Now, sometimes that might not pass the stomach test, and we'll talk more about that. But anyway, in general, if you're in a high-income bracket now, and there's and you're going to be in a low-income tax bracket, and typically that will be after you retire, so you don't have your, your income from your wages or, let's say, you're self-employed, But you are not yet 70, so you're not taking your Social Security. And by the way, I said Social Security 70, not 66. We'll talk a little bit about that later today. Um, Then, um, and and then your income is going to go back up after your Social Security and your minimum required distribution kicks in. Yes, then put money in the traditional. So long-winded answer to a short question, but I don't know how to answer it completely without uh, that verbiage. And you said we had one more, Erica.
2: Yes, although I have to say that a few other uh, accumulation-side questions have also come in. And by the way, thank you, uh, everyone. I was a little bit worried before I was thinking I was gonna need to pull some questions from a prior webinar, but then just when Jim asked for questions, we got a bunch more. And so please put your questions here. I forgot when I was flustered this morning to mention that Jim loves to answer questions and I can save any questions that don't get answered in this session. For future sessions, and even for the Q and A, the full Q and A session uh, tomorrow. Okay, so Jim, I will. Do you? Would you like me just to give you one for now, and maybe we can come back to the others, or what would you like?
1: That that's fine. And knowing you, Erica, you will sometimes combine several questions into one uh, to get the heart of the matter. But go ahead. Yes. Okay. uh, So
2: I'm gonna do. I'm gonna combine two. Which maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but. I think maybe the answer for one might be short enough that you can combine the two. So Tan asked, uh, do you think that one could accumulate too much money in an HSA? And this is a question that we've had in other webinars as well. People wondering like, what do you? what's the maximum that you could should put into an HSA or is there uh, an amount that's too much? And then also Sunil on the accumulation side asked, how does deferred compensation Factor into the savings order in terms of what you should prioritize putting money into during the accumulation phase.
1: Okay, well, there are two different questions. First, on the HSA, it's pretty hard. I guess there are situations when you put can put too much money in. Um, on the other hand, there's limitations on how much you're allowed to contribute. So it's not like you know you're going to be able to contribute a million dollars to these things, including the growth, uh, even if you put it in for years and years. And the reality is, as we age, um, we have more and more uh, medical expenses. Um, My family certainly has medical expenses. Uh, Our daughter does. Um, I certainly do. So um, we are still not spending our HSA. We're letting it accumulate on the assumption that we're going to still have. medical expenses later on and we're enjoying the tax-free growth. Are there some situations, let's say that, I don't know, you get up in the morning and you meditate and you eat your wheatgrass and you, you know, jog to your 95-year-old parents who are in the garden perfectly happy and perfectly healthy and nobody takes any pills or prescriptions and, well, I don't know, maybe you could accumulate that much money uh, in an HSA when it wouldn't make sense. Um, but even if you have to take money out of the HSA for non-health reasons and pay taxes on it, uh, it, to me it would be pretty hard. Is it possible? Yes. All right, so deferred compensation, that is like a non-deductible IRA. So what that means is your um Actually, well, a deferred, deferred comp would be, say, something like, okay, uh, the employer says, well, we're not going to pay you uh, right now, all right? We're going to pay you later. And what happens is you get a, um, you let's see, for well, and then there's different types of plans. But I think more traditionally the, the classic deferred comp is we're going to pay you later, you're gonna have to pay taxes on it later. So is that a good thing? Well, sure, because you're earning earning money and you're paying taxes later. I will tell you as a practical matter, sometimes a pain in the you-know-what for us as planners, because sometimes you don't have control of when you get that. So a lot of times like a deferred comp plan might say, okay, you can put away, x. X number of dollars into this plan or the employer puts in X number of dollars into this plan and you'll get it all within the first five years, the first 10 years of your retirement. Well, that's sometimes the years I want to do a Roth IRA conversion. Um, In general, though, are deferred comp plans good? I would certainly say yes. Okay, I think we have to move on and talk about the spending order. All right, so now we're we're done with our working uh, career, and let's say for discussion's sake that you have traditional retirement plans, uh, 401Ks, 403Bs, SEPs, TOs, IRAs, et cetera. Let's also assume that you have Roth IRAs. Let's also assume you have after-tax dollars, and those after-tax dollars, I'm gonna just categorize into two different types. One is after-tax dollars that have a significant appreciation. This would be if you bought stocks or a mutual fund Uh, way back when. The stock or mutual fund has gone up significantly in value. If you were to cash it in, you would have a capital gain on the difference between the selling amount and what's called the basis which is at least as a starting point, how much money you paid for it. Uh, and then there's sometimes some adjustments to basis like, um, let's say uh, <clears throat> reinvested dividends, etc. But anyway, so let's say that you do have an income like interest and dividends. You have to pay tax on that anyway. Let's say maybe you're getting social security. You have to pay tax on that anyway. So I would say first spend your income. Then... Subject to exception that we'll talk about, spend your after-tax dollars that don't have appreciation. So let's say you you let's say the money's in cash or the money is in an investment that hasn't done very well. Um, well, and and you don't have a capital gain or a significant capital gain if you use that money. Well, that would be the second best uh, money to spend. Then uh, spend your highly appreciated tax um, after-tax dollars where you are going to uh, incur a capital gain then your IRAs retirement plans 401ks 403bs that are hundred percent taxable and then spend your Roth IRA dollars last um, and let's just take the difference between spending your IRAs and retirement plan and your after-tax dollars because It's real. And by the way, a lot of people get this wrong and we'll talk about some of the exceptions. And I know some of you are you're all ready to shoot me, you know, because some of the exceptions might apply to you. But let's just quantify the difference uh, in, let's say, using the math for after tax dollar spending uh, versus um, spending money in your retirement plan. So the person in the black line is spending the after-tax dollars first. Then after they run out of the after-tax dollars, then they switch to the IRA. Um, The person in the serrated line in gray, they're spending their IRA dollars first. Well, just think about that. If you're spending your IRA dollars first, uh, let's oversimplify. It might cost you $1.35 that you have to take out of your... IRA then you pay your 35 cents tax to have a dollar left to spend where if you're spending your after-tax dollars and let's again assume no capital gain then you're, all you're doing is you're taking out a dollar. So if you take money out of your IRA first then you, you are in effect not earning interest or dividends or capital gains on that extra 35 cents. So a lot of people get this wrong. Are there exceptions? Sure. Um, Sometimes people want to hold on to their highly appreciated dollars uh, or their highly appreciated real estate, hoping to get the benefit of the step up in basis. And that, unfortunately, uh, only occurs at death. But, for example, if you're in your 90s and your doctor just said, oh, I'm really sorry, Uh, you should get your affairs in order because this cancer is just growing so quickly, obviously, you're not going to want to spend your highly appreciated dollars because it is very likely that you will um, die soon you, your heirs will get the step up in basis and nobody will pay the difference between what you originally paid for the investment um, and, and the selling point. and that might be particularly true in real estate where you not only get a step up in basis but then the beneficiary can actually start depreciating that property again Um, often though people overrate the importance of the step up and basis rules a lot of times particularly if they work for a company and they believed in the company and they bought a lot of stock in the company they are overweighted they have way too much of their money in that company and they're well hoping for the step up and basis well one thing is if with a portfolio that is out of balance, if that one particular company uh, has a big problem, you have a big problem because a substantial portion of your portfolio uh, could be uh, reduced or gone. And we, should, and you know, safety first, um, at least being smart about it. And the other problem is um, we don't know if the step-up and basis rules are going to be around when you are not around. In fact, I would say for the vast majority of the people on this webinar right now, if I was a betting man, and I sometimes have $1 bets with my buddies, um, I would bet that you are going to survive the repeal of the step up and basis rules. So I was, you know, for, it, for one family, it made so much sense for so many reasons for the parents, to gift a piece of real estate um, to their kids. They got got it out of their, their estate. The parents didn't want to deal with the property. Um, it, it, for a whole bunch of reasons, it made sense. But the other estate attorneys, and, and these, these folks were in their early 60s, um, the other estate attorneys said, oh, no, no, hang on to that property because of the step-up in basis. Well, I think for people in their 60s, the step-up in basis rules, are not gonna be around when you die. Um, And in addition, in this case, the intent of the property was not to sell it, but was to keep it in the family, which means that the kids weren't gonna sell it for maybe, who knows, maybe towards the end of their lifetimes. So sometimes you don't wanna let the the tail wag the dog, which is what happens sometimes with these uh, waiting for, The step-up in basis rules, but um, another one, another exception, and this might be uh, very important. This will be for people who have significant IRAs and are in a higher tax bracket and are headed for a a really big uh, tax in the event that they do nothing, meaning that their IRA is going to continue to grow and grow. They're going to be we're going to talk about the tax rate increases coming up we're going to talk about how miserable the secure act is going to be and it's not going to make it, it, it's clearly headed for higher taxes in the future both while you're alive and both when you're gone so i said the exception is to do a roth ira conversion and you know don't pay taxes now pay taxes later except the roth So again, we're going to talk quite a bit about that at 1 o'clock, but also sometimes it's going to make sense to go from the tax deferred, which is what most of us are in right now, to the tax-free, tax-free is Roth. Sometimes even better though is cashing in an IRA or part of it, paying the tax, taking what is left, which is going to be plain old after-tax dollars, and gifting those after-tax dollars to your heirs, whether they be children or grandchildren or who, whomever your heirs are, let's assume not spouse, and having those investments be tax-free. What am I talking about? Like a 529 plan. This, again, is for your kids. Health savings plan, uh, maybe life insurance. By the way, that would be on your life, not theirs. But that's a tax-free investment, assuming it's done right. Um, or you have you put money in I love to tell clients, hey, why don't you fund your kids or even your grandkids' Roth IRAs, get them started on tax-free early, or even have um, get them money to, for them to do a Roth IRA conversion when they are in a low tax bracket. And then sometimes uh, you might want to spend your, let's say, Roth IRAs uh, based on tax brackets. So we call that tax bracket management. So, again, there are exceptions. Um, Before I said I'm I'm not going to tell you how to spend your money, but actually I am. So for those of you who have been following me, you know that I love to have you spend money buying experiences with your family and friends. And I didn't learn that from a textbook. I learned that from my father-in-law who, for the last 25 years or probably longer, has been hosting a family vacation every year. We all go to the Poconos, and uh, we we have about four days, a long weekend of fun with the family. And the sense of plan that that family has, including my daughter, who doesn't have any uh, relatives or close relatives, especially her age, in the state— but she's not alone because she has, she knows and has seen her cousins every single year, and they get together on Zoom now, and she feels like she is part of a clan. So why don't we take um, one, one or two more quick questions? I'm going to give you a, tell you a little, just very, very shortly how you could potentially work with us, and then we will move on.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of Jim Lang's Retire Secure Podcast, where smart money talks. If you've had your questions answered and would like to schedule an appointment to meet with Jim, call our offices at 1-800-387-1129. That number again is 1-800-387-1129. And if you would like to attend one of Jim's upcoming virtual events, go to paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinar That address again is paytaxeslater.com forward slash webinars to reserve your virtual spot today.